All right, so we are picking up our study in Acts in chapter 12 uh, this morning. And last week, we actually made it through an entire chapter. And this week, lo and behold, we might actually make it through an entire chapter again. Um, But the title of today's message is Constant Prayer. Constant Prayer. Um, Last time we saw that the word spread of the Holy Spirit of the Gentiles, that as Peter went and ministered to the Gentiles, if you remember Cornelius' prayer had been answered, Um, that God came out and poured himself on the Gentile population, something that a lot of the Jewish people didn't quite get. They knew that Jesus was the Messiah and their Savior, but they were still astonished um, uh, when uh, God worked outside the box, so to speak. Uh, When Peter got back, there was opposition, but he gave his explanation, and the people who obviously, they were upset because they thought it went against the ways of God, but they were really seeking God, and so they said, yes, you know, we do see God working here. Um, because their hearts were uh, seeking the Lord. We saw Christians in other nations as the gospel began to spread throughout Asia and Turkey and, and the region. But at verse, uh, this time, I'm sorry, jumping ahead. Uh, this time we're going to look at royal persecution, where the persecution even goes all the way up to echelon to uh, those in power. Uh, we're going to see Peter in prison, uh, people in prayer. I was on an alliteration kick last night. <laughs> but people pleasing to people praising. Uh, Again, we're going to see a lot of different things in this chapter here. Uh, but one thing that I hope we take away is uh, being constant in prayer. You know, James 5, 13 through 16 says, Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. It goes on and says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It says that, man, do we believe that? That when we pray, and we pray, and we pray, that a lot can come out of that. Not because we're praying specifically, but man, that the one that we're praying to hears our prayers. The one that we're praying to wants to answer our prayers. The one that we're praying to already wants to do these things and just wants to get us involved. Um, You know, and when we pray, what do we expect? When we pray, do we expect an answer? When we pray, do we think God's going to work or not going to work? I know this is something that really uh, the Lord has kind of been stirring up and digging up uh, deeply in me, I hope. Uh, Probably not as deep as it should be, but man, that when I pray, am I really expecting God to do something or am I just praying because... Just what I do. It's just part of being Christianity. You know, just, oh, all right, I'll pray. You know, we pray. But what does Jesus say in Matthew 7, uh, 7 through 11? I'm sure you guys are all very familiar with this area of Scripture. And he says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, thanks Jesus, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You know, man, when our kids or a little kid comes up to you and asks you for something, you know, Daddy, I'm hungry. Mr. So-and-so, I'm thirsty. You know, do you go give them cleaner? Do you go give them something that's going to hurt their teeth? No, you know, my daughter and I were eating popcorn yesterday. I'm like, honey, watch out for the kernels. You know, I chew popcorn lightly. And if you get a kernel, don't eat it. And so she starts looking for them and, you know, doesn't eat them and stuff because I don't want her to hurt herself. I don't want her to, to break her teeth um, for her sake and my sake. <laughs> but 
but sincerely, you know, um, you know, I being evil, I, I try and give good gifts to my kids. And man, if we pray to God and we ask him for something, it's not in a whole twisted idea like we've talked about many times about, Lord, where's my Ferrari or where's my, you know, help me win the lotto jackpot this week. You know, maybe you will. Maybe he'll bless you with that. But man, God wants to answer our prayer in a good way and give us those good things. Um, but when, when do we pray? When do we pray? Is that the last moment? You know, right before the car hits the guardrail, that's a great time to pray. I've done that. <laughs> God gets you right on track. Or at, uh, is that the first moment? You know, sometimes something happens, you go, oh, I need to pray about that right away. So just at mealtime, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. Or, you know, are we praying? Are we constant in prayer? And do we pray at all? Do we pray at all? And I mean, well, maybe, yeah, do you ever pray at all? Like maybe you just pray once a week. Maybe you pray once a day. Maybe you never prayed before. I don't know. Um, I, I think everyone in this room has definitely prayed. But for real, you know, when we pray, are we really praying? Or are we just kind of, eh. I'm not even going through the motions in a religious way, but is our prayer, our supplication, really going to God? Because is anything too hard for God? Is, really, is anything too hard for me? I know that's like a saying we hear all the time. But when we pray, I think sometimes, I know when I pray, I go, oh, this is, not that I think it's too hard for God, but God doesn't really want to do this. God wouldn't really do this for me, would he? You know, that we'd have that faith. And I think hopefully we can take away from today's message that we need to be a people of prayer. So, Father, we ask that uh, this morning, uh, Lord, we know that you hear our prayer. And we know that you want to answer our prayer. And that, God, you gave everything that we might have an opportunity to pray to you and not have to go to an intermediary or go through a sacrificial system, God, but you fulfilled those things for us. So this morning, the things that are in our hearts or minds that we need to pray about, would you answer, whether it's about a place to meet or whether it's about our families or work or whatever, God, would you give us those answers? Would you help us to be expectant for those answers, whether it's yes or no or whatever your answer is, God, help, us to, help it to be well of our soul, like the song said. And please speak to us in your word. We know that you've given it to us, and we want to hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read Acts chapter 12, and we'll start with the first four verses uh, together. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, uh, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people at Passover. And we'll stop there for now. Herod the king. This is Herod Agrippa. He's the king over Judah, uh, Judea. Excuse me. Apparently he was an Edomite. Uh, he's from uh, the region, but maybe he was a convert to Judaism. Um, but he had more power, apparently, than the other Herods. Herod was like a name for a king in the area uh, by the Roman government. Um, you know, Rome kind of occupied the region. Rome had its little uh, vassal states that it kind of controlled. And Herod was given control over the region, but it was almost like a, a puppet ruler where, yeah, he kept the people happy. Yeah, the people had their own king. But really, who was actually calling the shots? Caesar was. And so as we'll see later, uh, when uh, Paul is arrested, he goes before these different guys and then he appeals to Caesar and things of that nature. Uh, but this guy was very uh, zealous about feasts, laws, and ceremonies. This guy was the king. He liked the whole idea of Judaism. He liked the idea, the pomp and circumstance, and the Mosaic law. Um, uh, but he liked it in his religion. 
he liked to make a big show of it. That's why he had this going on with Peter. That's why he arrests Peter at this time. And he doesn't quite deal with him right away. He wants the Passover to kind of pass first. Uh, but when we look at his actions, we see that this man is not a godly man. He's not really doing these things in his honor to God. He's a man who likes his power. He's a man who likes his popularity. And uh, he's a man who likes to do his religion in a very showy way because he likes the showy aspects of the religion. And I think we need to be careful of leaders who claim that level of godliness in their actions, in their likeness of religion, so to speak, uh, even if they're zealous about it. Um, but their ruling decisions are far from holy. And I know being in the Washington, D.C. area and election season, we probably think of political leaders. Um, of course, that's definitely one. All the politicians will get on the screen and say they're, they go to this church or they go to this mosque or they do this or they do that to try and get the vote. Um, you know, they'll change their accent when they go visit other people in different areas. Um, and I'm not always talking about that. I'm talking about spiritual leaders as well. Um, not that there's anything wrong, per se, with wearing a robe or a hat, if that's part of maybe Eastern Orthodoxy or something. I'm not saying that you can't have a relationship with God and have those things. But I think, man, we need to be wary of those people who maybe they don't have the hat, maybe they don't have the robe, but they're still very much into the pomp and circumstance, very much into the showy religious part of things. Um, as Jesus said, they like to be the ones praying in the streets or at the high seat at the feasts. Um, because, man, if we, if we look and we see what happens here, just because they have this going on, sometimes underneath there's something that's uh, not godly at all. But we see now in here in chapter 12 that persecution is coming back again. That uh, the church had been persecuted uh, quite roughly. They, were, they began to spread out to different areas. Saul, before he became a Christian, was persecuting the church. But then we saw that uh, when Saul became a Christian, that this persecution really kind of died down. You know, he cut off the head of the snake, the snake dies, that sort of thing. The persecution, there was a lull for a season. But now it's starting to flare up again and flare up even in a bigger way where it's not just the people who want to persecute the church, but it's the actual leadership, the actual government, uh, their local government. Um, and peace on earth is usually short-lived. You know, anytime we get a peace, anytime there's a peace treaty or a peace agreement, you know, you look at the peace treaties in Israel and they sign a peace treaty or the world's like, yay, and then two weeks later it's broken for some reason or another. Um, or even in our own lives, you know, maybe you have a, a hard relationship with someone at work or someone in your family and there's peace for, oh, we've had peace for half an hour at Thanksgiving dinner. And then all of a sudden, oh, there goes that peace. Someone brought up that thing again from 1974 and, you know, it's all over with. You know, it's, it's short-lived a lot of times when there's uh, emotions and things in there. Uh, but the world is really only going to approve of you for a short time, believer or unbeliever, before it turns on you. I mean, we think about these people who get very famous being one-hit wonders and they make millions of dollars and the world loves them, but then it begins to turn on them. Then the world begins to hate them. They become a mocking post and no one wants to buy their stuff anymore and they're bankrupt and working at Subway or something. I don't know. But really, the, if the world turns on its own, it's because the world is only using people for its own purpose. If they're not expedient anymore, what's the point? And we see that here even more with Christians. You know, if the world is looking favorably upon you, or if you have favor in the world, it's probably only going to last for a season. It's probably only going to last for a little while before someone begins to mock you and persecute you as you live a godly life. Uh, it's probably only a little while, you know, like after September 11th, people begin to go back to church and, and seek God again. But now it's happening. Now, you know, you can't even express your Christian beliefs without uh, being mocked. Um, but we see that he killed James, 
Um, uh, he's the brother of John, you know, James and John, sons of Zebedee. Uh, James was probably the older brother here. Uh, but from history, it says that he died around uh, 44 AD. So this is about 11 years after uh, the ascension. So a decent amount of time has passed by the time we get here to chapter 12. Uh, he was believed to be the first apostle martyred, um, even though, as we remember, Stephen was the first guy to be officially martyred. But when, when Herod did this, you know, again, I'm not totally sure of his motive. I can kind of guess maybe by what's written here in Scripture, but uh, only the Lord knows, I think. But, you know, I think he was seeking popularity here. And when he saw that, it pleased the Jews that, yeah, these Christians kind of oppose my, my religion that I'm so into uh, on the surface. It really fanned the flames. He killed James, and wow, the people love it. The people love this. I mean, think again. Roman Empire, you have the gladiator fights. You have all these other things that maybe necessarily weren't going on in this region, but are part of the culture where uh, Caesar would have these huge fights, bring in uh, slaves and gladiators, and the people would be in an uproar and love it. And as the empire continued to grow on, Caesar would continue to have these events. And were, there were, I think there were 180 days a year. There were holidays in the Roman uh, Empire. It's where you get the... Uh, What's that saying? Um, uh, butter and uh, I forget what it is, but basically it's like, you know, you keep giving the people bread and bread and circuses. I say you keep giving the people food and giving them entertainment and they're going to like you and keep you in power and not cause any uproar. And I think that that's sort of the mindset here that, man, well, they like this bloodshed. They really hate these people. I'm going to offer them up and um, and I'm going to gain some popularity out of it and some power out of it. Again, it's one thing to be a representative of the people, um, you know, as far as our quote-unquote style of government is, where we elect people and they're supposed to represent our interests in the federal government or the state government, and they're supposed to do things on our behalf. But it's another thing when leaders do things to gain popularity by mob rule, where the leader will listen to the mob and do what the mob wants so that the leader can stay in power and the leader can stay in popularity. Instead of doing what's right, they do what, whatever the, the, the outcry is. Um, you saw that's how Jesus was crucified. Pilate didn't want to crucify him. He said, I'll give you a criminal. You know, we'll, we'll release some other guy. And they said, no, crucify him. But the church, and I think sometimes the leaders in the church, and again, when I say these things, I don't necessarily mean maybe one specific church. It's just something that I kind of see as a whole or floating in and out of Christianity um, with my limited vision, is that the church does things sometimes to please people. Sometimes they do certain ways of music or certain styles of teaching or certain styles of ministry that maybe aren't, aren't ungodly, but maybe it's trying to please the people to the point where maybe even at some point it gets to where do they even teach the Bible anymore? Do they even believe the Bible anymore? Do they even say that the Bible is literal anymore? Um, just to make people happy. Um, uh, again, you know, I sort of believe in the, in the church government model that Calvary Chapel follows where you have the leadership and you have the senior pastor and they make decisions. But there's other churches that are really sort of board run where the people say, oh, well, we don't like what the pastor's been teaching lately. Let's get rid of him. Or we think he's getting too old. Let's get rid of him. And, and again, I don't know if there's anything wrong with necessarily certain different types of church government. But when it comes down to the people getting what they want to hear and having itching ears, and the leaders begin to pander to that. You get into trouble. And we see the same thing in our, um, in our secular government. When the government begins to sort of twist things and bend things and do things to remain on the popular side. But Herod wasn't interested in pleasing God, I don't believe. He was interested in pleasing himself. It pleased the people and it pleased him to get what he wanted out of the people. And we need to be careful of our motives and our reasoning and who we let influence us, especially if we're in any amount of leadership, whether it's at work, 
or at home in a family or whether it's with friends or anywhere really that when man when we're making our decisions that we make them according to the right ways not according to what everyone wants to do you know if i made my decisions based on what my wonderful two and a half year old wanted to do all the time we'd be eating candy she would just eat bread and butter all day long <laughs> you know she would never eat her vegetables and never go to bed and all these other things when Sometimes I have to say no and she cries and gets upset and doesn't like me. Well, I want her to have what's good for her. I know it's good for her to go to bed at a certain time. I know it's good for her not to eat bread and butter all day or just have chips. You know, got to eat your tuna. You know, you got to eat the whole, the whole deal. And that's what's dangerous when leaders begin to, to pander to that way. We end up just getting junk and more junk and more junk. But this happened during the days of unleavened bread. It was the feast of Passover. It reminds me when Jesus was taken. Uh, but um, when he arrests Peter, and uh, he says he guarded him with four squads. That's at least 16 soldiers guarding Peter. You know, what kind of criminal do you guard with 16 soldiers? Uh, Goliath, maybe? I don't know, but Peter? You know, I, I think it's a bit of an overkill here, an excessive use of force. Um, but, man, I think Herod's plans and Herod's plotting needed a lot of protection for it. You know, when we begin to do things on our own and try and scheme to get things our way, we begin to put up all sorts of protection for them. Sometimes it's overkill to make sure that it goes our way, to get what we want out of it. Uh, you know, guards took Jesus to the, uh, guards to take Jesus and sent all the soldiers to arrest Jesus. And was he ever violent? Uh, and then they put guards at Jesus' tomb to prevent people from stealing his body. But again, this persecution was just to please the people. You know, Herod was so intent on pleasing the people by killing people. He was killing the church to, to get uh, his, his vote in there. And I think that state-sponsored persecution is a very scary thing. We think of areas like China or North Korea where, you know, you have to be on an approved list in China. The, certain, the state church, the above-ground church, that's not totally the church, not really the church maybe. You have the underground church that really believes the Bible. And I think that that's scary in a sense. And, you know, I, I would not want to live under something like that. But I think it's at least logical because at least there's a controlled measure there where you assume, okay, well, they're the government and they're logically going to carry it out this way to keep the government in power um, because they see a threat to their authority there. But I think almost in a sense, when you have a megalomaniac like Herod and when he just wants to persecute people on a whim or on a popularity vote, and it's not necessarily policy that the government is king, um, that uh, it's a little bit scarier because, again, there's no necessarily checks and balances there. There's no, there's no rhyme or reason for it. It's just this crazy madman saying, oh, let's go kill some more people this weekend. And at a flip of a hat, um, something can happen. Um, and I think we see a, a fair share of people like this today who are obsessed with their own power, who are just going to do things the way they want to do things, no matter what the law says, no matter what is right and wrong. Um, and again, I think that's in church as well as in secular government. But at this point, James is dead. Uh, James, the son of Zebedee, is dead. Peter is in prison, and basically he's on death row. They're just waiting a couple days for the feast to be over uh, to kill him. So let's pick it up in verse 5. <clears throat> it says, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. 
and his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him. And he did not know uh, what was done by the that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. We'll stop there. This is some story here. You know, these are the things that I read and I go, man, I would love if they made this into a legit movie. Or I would love to, you know, be there with the drone camera and watching all this go on. Uh, but we see in the beginning here that as he's in prison, constant prayer was offered by the church. Constant prayer was offered by the church. And uh, we see here that prayer is an offering. Prayer is an offering. Revelation 8, 3 through 6 says, Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense and the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. So we see the prayers come up before God, the angels put on the altar, and what, is, what happens here? They pour it back out on the earth in the tribulation. And uh, maybe that's me, like uh, the disciples are like, Jesus, can we just pray and have fire come down from heaven on them? And he goes, no, 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 you guys don't get it. Maybe that's the part of me that loves us so much, uh, this justice. But we see that, that our prayers do go up before God, and they are in an offering to him and a sweet smell to him. It's a fragrance that goes up before God, that when we pray, God's like, mm, that smells good. You know, on Thursday, I think, or Friday, or whenever maybe we have a Thanksgiving celebration or, or cooking a good meat, you get that smell. You know, it begins to come out, mm, you know, everyone starts coming in the kitchen, looking around. That's the same thing with the Lord. When he begins to smell our prayers cooking and coming up before him, he begins to come around and go, mm, that smells good. You know, and I hope our prayers are a sweet offering to him and, and not some other sort of smell. But they're also prepared for God's use. That as we pray, again, not that God's not going to do anything without us, that if we never pray, God's not going to do anything. That's not really how it works. I think God wants us to be a part of what he's doing, and he wants to use our prayers uh, to, to be effective on earth. This word constant um, means fervently, without ceasing, stretched out. Uh, it's also metaphorically meaning like an intent and, uh, or earnestly or constant or unremitting. Constant in application or effort, working diligently at a task. Think about that. This prayer is working diligently at a task, uh, persevering, industrious, and also attentive. I love that, that when we pray, the idea here of constant fervent, effectual prayer is that we are working at something. That when we go and we spend time with the Lord in prayer, whether it's 30 seconds, a minute, an hour, 10 days, whatever it is, we are building something. We are working on something that human hands can't fix, can't do on their own. You know, we can go out and share the gospel, but if we're not praying, it's not going to happen. If, you know, we can go and patch someone up with bandages all day long, but really, that'll never save their soul. If we pray for them, it can happen. It can happen. There's also this idea of being attentive, that when we pray, man, we're attentive. We're really paying attention 
to what's going on in the spiritual realm as we're praying in this person's life, in our friend's life, in our own life, as God would see things. And even attentive in the fact that, man, I realize that I'm coming before God on the throne and I'm asking him something. I'm praying something to him. I think that that's awesome. But do any of these things really describe our prayer life? I, ouch, I don't know. I'm, I'm looking at this going, man, uh, it's hard. I, it's encouraging. It's like scathing in a way, but it's also encouraging because, man, it's, I want to pray more like this. I want to pray more attentively. I want to pray more like I'm at a task and I'm doing something important um, because prayer is the most important thing we can do. We think of maybe constant prayers like a prayer vigil where a bunch of people get together and pray uh, or constant prayer. I don't know if you ever... Um, I forget what event it was, but we've done a couple events where, or times in church season up in New York when uh, people would gather and pray throughout the day for an event. You know, they'd have prayer teams that would come in throughout the day and pray for things. Uh, or maybe prayer behind the scenes. I've heard of churches that have prayer teams that pray all throughout the message, all throughout the service, that while the pastor's teaching, while the worship's going on, while the fellowship's going on, there's people in some back room somewhere praying. Why? Because they know that that prayer is important. Um, it's the, it's the engine behind the scenes. Or prayer before and after something. You know, we need to pray when these things are going on. And, and not simply in that nice uh, saying of our thoughts and prayers are with you. You know, because really our thoughts can be forgotten. And if we're not praying to the one who actually answers prayer, I don't really want your prayer with me. <laughs> you know, you can pray all you want, but it's not going to do anything. Um, but prayer puts the power of God in place I believe through faith that as we pray to God for something, his power wants to be put in place. Like those angels casting down our prayer mixed with fire, casting it down on the earth uh, for these things. Uh, and then prayers, I think also prompt our perspective. They prompt our perspective that as we pray, God says, okay, good. I've been, I've been waiting to do this. I've wanted to do this. I'm already doing this. And now you get to see it happen. Now you get to see my side of things that, oh, yes, it was God who answered my prayer. Oh, yes, it was God who healed them. Oh, yes, it was God who gave me this new job opportunity or this gift that someone gave me or whatever it is that meets our need or meets someone's need. But they were in prayer constantly. It wasn't just, oh, Peter's in prison. Let's have prayer for him. We'll pray for him before the meal and then we'll call it a day. But that it was constant. I think it was constant because Peter meant a lot to them. And I think when someone means a lot to us, we're going to be constantly praying for them, especially when they're going through trouble. And I think sometimes we forget that. And then when they go through trouble, man, we go, I want to, I want to pray for them. And maybe, maybe that, that signals a change that needs to happen in us. But, um, you know, what does it take to be constant about something? You know, do we need to believe that they will be heard and answered? I think maybe we're not constant sometimes in prayer because we're not sure that it's going to be answered or we're not sure that God is going to do it. Um, but God is, and God wants to. And God's going to answer your prayer. Always he will answer your prayer. This may not be the answer we had expected, right? But we see here that Peter was rescued at basically the 11th hour. It's the night before he was going to be brought out and killed that this whole little adventure story happens here. Um, and again, let's, let's pray for guys like Pastor Saeed. Maybe we can pray for him at the end of service or uh, even now. Let's just pray. Lord, Father, we pray for Pastor Saeed and others who are imprisoned. Uh, wrongfully, God, and God, we pray you use them in there. You'd minister to their family, but God, that you would heal them and would free them in your time and your way. But uh, we ask for it now for them. Um, I couldn't imagine any of us being in prison and our families being left out. So we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. But picture this. Peter's got 16 plus guards on him. There's guards all around the prison. There's guards at the gates. There's two guard posts. There's guys out front. Um, 
And I don't know if you, I don't picture security guards here or a bumbling, you know, Paul Blart mall cop. These are, you know, legitimate guards. These guys are tough. Um, my brother-in-law is uh, on Ashley's side is a prison guard and he's a big guy. He's a nice guy, fun guy. But I don't know that, you know, I, I'd want to be in prison on the other side of him. Um, but really, uh, they were there. And in fact, Peter's sleeping and he's got a guard chained, two guards chained to him. He's sleeping there, chained to guards. I mean, think about that. This is, uh, this is pretty serious. He's going out the next day to be killed. And it says that a light shone in the prison. A light shone in the prison. I think God blinded those guards. Uh, you know, I don't know if you guys watched uh, Saved by the Bell in the 80s or 90s kind of dated me. But one of the kids, Zach Morris, would, sometimes during, I don't know if he did it every season, but they would call time out. And he would have this aside to the camera. And like Slater would be stuck like this and Mr. Belding would be in the middle of doing something Mr. Belding would do. And he would have this time out and begin to talk to the camera. Or there's this other 80s show about this girl whose dad was like an alien. And like she would go like this and things would freeze. And the opening scene, paint would be spilling and she would go like this and have to stop the paint from filling or whatever. But that's kind of what I picture here in a way. I don't think it's exactly like that. But in a sense where God shines a light in this prison and no one really realizes what's going on. But there's a light here. Peter sees the light, maybe even the guards see it, I don't know, but they don't realize what's going on. Um, and the angel shows up, so Peter's here, he's got a couple of guards, the angel shows up, and I'm not going to kick over my water, uh, I've already stained this carpet enough, and he, come on, Peter, get up, get up, get up. I mean, think about that, I mean, think about that. A sleeping fisherman. How, how deeply do you think Peter could sleep? You know, I know some guys who are construction workers, and boy, they sleep, and they cut a log, and I don't think anyone else in the prison was sleeping as Peter was sleeping. Um, I think about youth group when we'd have uh, all-night lock-ins or sleep-outs or whatever we call them, and the boys would sleep. It would take forever to get the boys to go to sleep, and in the morning it would take forever to get them waking up. Or there would be guys who would be up all night, and at 6 in the morning they'd kick you and say, let's go play football. I'm like, it's 6 in the morning. And <laughs> go play. But the angel wakes him up, picture Peter waking up, and he says, arise quickly. Peter, come on, let's go. Let's get out of here right now. Um, and his chains fell off. That didn't say the, the, the angel picked out his lockpick set and began to pick it and go, what type of chains are those again? You know, he, they fell off. The chains fell off miraculously. Um, he says, gird yourself, tie on your sandals. Basically, Peter, get ready to run. Get ready to run. I'm not carrying you, Peter. Get up. Um, and I think we see here that, uh, you know, this idea of girding your loins where they had to, they wore like the longer uh, robe things. They had to tie them up with their belt so that they could run a little freely. Tied his sandals on, you know, you know, sometimes you go out to take out the trash or something, you kind of slip your shoes on and the heel's not on all the way. And you're kind of like schlepping out to the trash can and you put your trash out. He's saying, Peter, make sure your shoes are tied. You need to get going here. Um, and I think roughly 40 years later, Peter uh, pens this verse by the Holy Spirit, 1 Peter 1 through 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That Peter's here, he's got to gird up his, uh, his robe, but later on he's writing, gird up your mind, that your mind would be ready for the things of God. Your mind would be ready to run at a moment's notice when the Lord <laughs> kicks you out of your sleep. Uh, but I don't think that Peter was expecting to go anywhere fast. I mean, obviously he's passed out. He's got his sandals off. He's got, you know, his robe's probably over there, his jacket's over there, you know, maybe he's rolled up and using his jacket as a pillow, I don't know. But I think Peter's pretty much ready just to wake up and go be killed and be the spectacle. I don't think he's really expecting to be going anywhere that night. I wouldn't either if I was chained to, to two special forces guys. Like, that's it, I'm here. Whatever happens, happens. You know, maybe he's remembering that time when Jesus said to him, 
hey, there's going to come a time when they take you where you don't want to go, and maybe he thinks this is, this is it. Uh, he's got no escape plans. <laughs> you know, he doesn't have a map in his pocket of the prison. You know, he hasn't been chiseling away all night. I think about sneaking out as a kid and how my one, I'd have my one friend go, or I'd go flush the toilet and have my one friend run downstairs so <laughs> my mom wouldn't hear us. And then I would flush it as he opened the door. And then, you know, we had all these plans to get in and out. So one day, if my kids ever listen to this, I know what you're going to do. <laughs> you're not going to get it past me. Um, but he says, come on, Peter, put on your garment. Let's go. Let's go, Peter. Time is of the essence here. I love that God sends an angel, but still God's not really totally messing up the space-time continuum here. He's still saying, hey, we got to be quick about this. We got to get you in and out here. Um, but he did not know it was real. He thought it was another vision. You know, he's woken up in the middle of the night. Who knows what time it is? There's an angel waking up, telling him to get dressed. His chains are gone. Maybe he's like, man, this is just a dream. Maybe it's another vision. I just had a vision. Um, he's in that middle of the night stupor. You know, have you ever been woken up in the middle of the night by something, a phone call, or just woken up to go get a midnight snack or something, and you just kind of, oh, I don't know what day it is. Uh, I remember being a little kid when we lived in Florida. I was probably three or four, and there was a hurricane, and we had to go to my aunt's house, which was further inland. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night. It was all surreal. And, or also when Jacob was being born, I remember, I think I was sleeping on the couch, and uh, my wife woke me up at like 2 in the morning. And she's like, I'm, I'm so sorry to wake you up, but my water broke. Like she was, she like didn't want to wake me up, and she was ready to go to the hospital. I was in the middle, I was like, "What?" And we grabbed our bags. They were by the door, and just this whole stupor going to the hospital. But think of that here, you know, that's sort of the mindset Peter's in. He's still kind of groggy, still not quite sure what's going on. Uh, but what an adventure! What an adventure! What a scene this is! You know, this is reality, guys. Again, when we read the Bible, we need to remember that this is reality. This happened. Um, as they get out there, they get past a couple guard posts. Uh, you know, again, they're, they're running out there, and Angel and Peter are running, and the guards are just sitting there. You know, they don't see anything. Maybe they're looking the other way, and they don't hear it. I don't know, but God did something there. Uh, but as they get to the big iron gate that leads to the city, think the big outer fence. It's got razor wire of their day on it. It's big, and it's heavy. And it says that it, it opens on its own accord. Again, the angel didn't open it, the angel didn't unlock it, but the gate itself, just big old heavy gate, opened on itself. And I don't know any prison doors that are going to open on their own. There's not, you know, the wind didn't blow and, and blow this gate open. It opened on its own accord. I know God did it. But I think what's great is that as, as this happened, as this happened, having kids is great, as this happened, um, it says that it's on, on its own accord. I think it's great that the gate itself didn't want Peter to be chained in there. The chains themselves, I think, in a sense, not that they're animate objects, didn't want Peter to be chained. That they obeyed God like the wind and the waves, and they opened and let Peter out. But they go down one street. I love how specific certain scriptures are. It says they go down one street, like literally one block, and the angel's gone. And Peter's out there. Middle of the night. What's going on? Rubbing the sleep out of his eyes. Okay, we've made it one block out of view. You know, the guard post can't see this block down. And things begin to click. Maybe it's the cold air begins to get to Peter. You know, this is some crazy sleep block he went on. Um, but he says, now I know for certain. Now I know for certain. You know, this, this isn't a dream. This isn't a vision. I'm on the corner of 4th and Main at 3 in the morning. And it's cold out. And I was just in prison two minutes ago. Um, you know, I, I think that he probably had been praying. But again, he had come to grips with the reality that he would probably be killed. 
You know, I think that's why he said he knows for certain. And again, he came to grips when it actually happened, when it actually happened. And I think it's the same way with us and God. We pray about something or we're in the middle of a situation and God begins to deliver us from that situation. We don't always quite believe it until it's over, you know, kind of pinch me in my, in my dreaming sort of thing. Um, but that's exactly what the Lord wants to do for us. Let's make our dreams come true. Uh, and let's continue on in the next couple of verses. Uh, verse 12. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you're beside yourself, girl. <laughs> I inserted that last part there. But yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it's his angel. You know, don't worry about it. He's not there. Um, but here we see that he stops at Mary's house, John Mark's mom. You know, Mark's in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, he writes down basically Peter's account. But many gathered praying. Many gathered praying. Obviously, it wasn't very far away from the prison. But Peter's friends and the church are, are gathered here. We see that people in another area are gathered praying. Um, and that's awesome. There's, there's, there's such a blessing to a church and a group of believers praying together. You know, when the church prays together, there's just a blessing about hearing the people that you fellowship with pray, hearing your family pray, hearing your friends pray, and the things that God puts on their heart, you go, wow, wow. You know, the things that, that God speaks to them through that will minister to you and encourage you to pray about things. I never thought about praying that. And um, it's just a knitting together that comes there. But man, when the church is gathered together in one purpose like this, to pray for someone that they care about and they love, um, that's, that's the way it should be. But he's at the door of the gate, you know, end of the driveway, there's this gate, basically, and he's knocking there. He's trying to get in. Uh, it's locked, apparently. Uh, but this girl, Rhoda, goes up. She's excited. Uh, oh, it's Peter! And turns around and runs back. You know, imagine that. You know, you're knocking at the door. You just got released from prison, and Rhoda comes to the door. Peter, yay! And runs away. Where'd you go? Hello? Hello? <laughs> you know, I love that, that this, this young girl is so excited that, you know, you think of, like, young girls are bubbly and excited and you know they get so excited they forget what's going on and i love that um but she comes back and they go you're crazy you know he's, peter's not there yeah we're praying for him all night but it's not peter it, you know it's his angel you know the church is praying for his release peter shows up and they don't believe it i mean i'm sure we've heard this a million times i mean it's it's obvious in the scripture but can you believe that can you believe that and i think man if we were ever praying for something and Something showed up at the door. I, I think it would be more than a coincidence. But prayer works simply, and it simply works. Prayer works simply, and it simply works. You know, they were praying, and God simply sent an angel and simply had him put on his shoes and run out of prison. But they say here that uh, it's just his messenger. You know, it could be maybe there was a guy that was a Peter. Maybe there's somebody on Peter's behalf giving them his last message. That's all it was. Uh, but there's also this sort of pagan belief and belief that was kind of carried in the day that when you died, uh, you're, an angel took your appearance and went to people you loved and shared it. And this isn't a biblical thing. This isn't something that the Bible teaches, but the Bible is showing what, what they sort of believed here that, yeah, we've been praying for him all night. He's supposed to die. He's probably just about to die right now. They're probably just about to kill him. And this is what you've heard and this is what you've seen. Um, and again, they were praying and they weren't expected it to be answered. I think they thought the situation was hopeless. And they were praying uh, that God might do something about it. Let's see if we can go on and, and, and close out here. If not, we'll, uh, we'll uh, save the rest for a uh, couple weeks from now. Let's go on. Verse 16. 
Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go, tell these things to James, this is a different James, and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. You know, again, Peter continued knocking. I'll bet he did. I'll bet he did. You know, let me in. I'm on the street. The guards are coming for me any minute. I can hear the sirens. Um, but man, God let Peter out of prison? Isn't that against the law? Would, why would God break the law like that? Well, it wasn't a godly law. Think about sending Bibles in North Korea where people get these balloons and they put Bibles and they send them up over the border and then the balloons break and the Bibles drop down. They're willing uh, to go against those laws because they're unjust. But he says, keep quiet. You know, Peter, you're here. Peter, Peter, Peter. Two in the morning. You can hear miles away. Let's not say my name out loud, guys. Let's not cause a ruckus. I just got released from prison. You know, I think of uh, the other day, Jacob was napping and I came out of uh, the playroom slash office. I'm like, hey, Ashley. And she's like, shh, Jacob's sleeping. You know, sometimes you just totally forget the situation you're in and you're a little too loud. And that's sort of what's going on here. But there's no small stir among the soldiers. I mean, seriously, two guards are chained to him. Peter disappears. The guards at the door are like, Mo and Larry, what did you do? Where is Peter? How could you let him go? He was chained to you guys. What are you doing? And then the other guards, how'd you let him out? How is the gate open? How did he get past all you guys? You know, picture all these guys doing three stooges on each other. Um, but it was no small stir among them. And that Herod actually has these guys killed. And, and I think that, yeah, that's part of Herod's nature. But also in Roman law, if these guys were Roman soldiers, if they were attached to a prisoner and they lost that prisoner, and that prisoner had sort of a death sentence on them, that death, that death sentence would be carried on to them. That's sort of motive not to lose your prisoner. Um, we'll see that in other areas of scriptures as well. But Caesarea, he goes away to Caesarea. You know, he can't find Peter. He can't get his way. Maybe he doesn't want to deal with the people after the feast. He needs to get away to his little uh, beachfront vacation, play some golf or something to forget about his troubles. But he goes away for, for this time. Let's go on. Verse 20. Now Herod had been very angry at the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aide their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave oration to them. And the people kept shouting, The voice of a god and not a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. See here, he's, he's not very happy. He's very angry with the people of this, this region. They had been supplying them with food. The people had not really been good subjects. Uh, so the people had made friends with uh, his aide. You know, they kind of made friends with the secretary of state here, wherever it is. And uh, they get this, this viewing in front of Herod to kind of get on his, his good graces. But we see here that Herod puts on the bling. He puts on his robe. He puts on his crown. He sits on his throne. He gives this massive oration, this kingly oration. And I think you can really just, you can just, I don't know, you can just smell through this verse. It's, uh, you know, Herod in there trying to be all powerful and, and, uh, and everything. Um, but he gave an oration here. And the people ended up praising him. They say, the voice of a God and not a man. 
You know, again, this very Roman idea where Caesar was king and Caesar was also um, in the sense of deity. Uh, but they praise him. Why? They don't praise him because he's actually the voice of a god, but because the king is angry with them and they want to keep getting their, uh, their food and their, their uh, check or whatever else he's providing for them. You know, Proverbs 26, 28 says, A lying tongue hates those who are crushed by it, and a flattering mouth works ruin that. These people are just flattering Herod to get what they want. They're just flattering to get him what he wants. But he takes it. He loves it. He soaks it up. Um, you know, I think about, uh, there's probably a million one examples we could list of these sort of things going on in, in our day and age. Um, but they said that he is a voice of a God, the voice of a God. And that's a pretty bold statement, you know. None of you, thankfully, say, oh, that was the voice of a, you have the voice of a God today. No, <laughs> not at all, not at all. Um, hopefully you hear God's voice, but my voice is definitely nothing special. Uh, but we see here that he takes it. Not a godly man, obviously doing very ungodly things. And God, at some point, holds him accountable for this. And in fact, it happens right away. God said, that's enough. That's enough. You kill James. You try to kill Peter. You're doing some wicked things. You're my king in power over my people. And you're letting them call you God. And not even God in heaven, just that there is no God, but you are a God. And that's when God's judgment begins. Maybe it's the same angel here. Maybe the same angel strikes Herod. I don't know. Maybe the angel's like, God, you know, I just got Peter out. Can I uh, take care of this for you? I don't know. I don't know what that one was like. But we think of guys like Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament who were king and, and God revealed himself to Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar's power grows. It goes to his head. He goes insane for all those years. And then at the end of the years, he gets his mind back and he ends up praising God. But Herod was, was God's man in charge. You know, like Romans 13, 1 says, you know, there's no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God and that we need to be subject to them. That even those who are wicked in power, God has allowed them to have power. But I know that God is going to hold them accountable for giving them that power one day, whether it's through earthly circumstances, whether it's through diseases, or whether it's through just the judgment seat. They're going to be held accountable for that. And I think even more so, if we have a spiritual authority, you know, you're in leadership or you're just a Christian and people begin to praise you, um, it's very dangerous. It'll puff you up. If you don't say no, uh, sometimes it's hard because, you know, you don't want to be rude, but people will say things to you, whether they're believers or unbelievers. Um, and, you know, they're just trying to be nice and they don't really mean anything by it. But you kind of got to say, no, it, it's totally God. It's totally God. And we see that Herod does not do that. And he dies disgustingly, rotten to the core. You know, uh, Matthew Henry says this of him, that he was eaten of worms. Um, he became worm eaten. So it must be read, rotten he was, and he became like a piece of rotten wood. The body in the grave is destroyed by worms. But Herod's body putrefied while he was yet alive and bred the worms which began to feed upon it betimes. Um, man, that when we give over to power, we give over to flattery and people's praise, we get very rotten. We get rotten from the core. We may have the pomp, the circumstance, the robe, the power, the authority, but we get very rotten. You know, you look at rulers, you look at certain leaders and you go, man, that's exactly it. They look great. People love them and praise them, but they are rotten and evil people. Um, you know, and people like this are always going to be rotten. There's no way that you can accept personal praise that's meant for God and not have it corrupt you. Uh, and that's why I say pray for pastors, pray for leaders, pray for each other, that as God begins to do stuff and use us in, in ways that we wouldn't be puffed up and think, oh, yeah, you know, I really am good at that. And it really was me who did that. And, uh, you know, it's not how it works. And I think we need to have sobriety here. 
sobriety that when when we do get praise, even if it's for a gift and talent that we would give God praise for, we give glory to God. You know, I think it's better to over-attribute things to God in our lives if that's possible and seem overly ridiculous in that sense than to go the other way and, and not give glory to God. But we see that even through all this, that what happens? The word of God grows. The word of God multiplies. The church is blessed. And God's word can't be stopped. It can't be stopped. I think that in a sense that this wicked, rotten ruler became fertilizer for the word of God to grow here. And uh, as we close out, we're just going to read the last verse here in uh, chapter, uh, sorry, verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. You know, we see Barnabas and Saul coming back. Barnabas went up to get Saul, came back with him. Um, you know, uh, we're going to see more of these two and others in the next coming chapters in the rest of the book. You know, chapters 1 through 12 is mainly the ministry of Peter, as we've seen. And chapters 13 through the end, chapter 28, is mainly the ministry of Paul or Saul, who would become Paul. But it says they came back when they had fulfilled their ministry. That when they had done what they had been led to do, when God had presented opportunities to them, they fulfilled those opportunities. And when those opportunities were taken care of, people were raised up, that they said, okay, it's time for us to move on. And again, like we looked at recently, I love their schedule. They stay until the job is done. God calls them to go somewhere. Oh, okay, we're going to go here. God calls them to go over here. Oh, we're going to go over here. And there was no like, well, I got to be here next week. So, you know, you guys are on your own. That They really were sold out to the Lord in that way. And I think that that's awesome. And they were very confident that they had done what God had asked. And uh, I think that this says to us, we need to, to not move on until we know that we've done what God has asked us to do in a certain circumstance or situation, whether it's wait for his answer, whether it's just be patient and be happy with the salary, salary we're paid or whatever the answer is, whatever the th- situation is, that, whether it's ministry or life, that we wouldn't rush on and move on until we've accomplished what God has for us. You know, John Mark goes with them. Um, and we'll see uh, the ministry of him as well. And he's mentioned later on in Scripture as well. Obviously, he writes Mark. Uh, but how important it is to take youngers, younger believers with us when we go on a journey, whether it's younger in age, whether it's younger in spiritual uh, life, that we would take them with us when we go on a journey. We would have them be a part of the ministry, help raise them up. Um, and that's why you know, youth ministry was such a big part of my life is that God had me in it, obviously, but... There was such a value in it. I saw older guys pour into my life, and I just love pouring into, into younger guys' lives as well because I want them to not miss out on the things that I missed out on and the things that I did wrong I don't want them to do. Um, and I think that that's important that, that we do that for our kids and our friends and family as well. But we see here as we close that the church was in constant prayer. They offered it up to God, and their prayers were answered. Peter was freed. Yeah, James was killed, and, and God allowed that. But Peter was freed and, um, and, Herod, and Herod was killed at the end. That man. So when we pray, and we pray, God, would you take out that leader? Would you f- fix that leader? Eventually, God will bring someone else into it. You know, that, that people come and go. But God uh, does not change. And Father, we thank you for that. And God, help us to be constant in prayer. That uh, Lord, we thank you that you answer prayer, that you do things miraculously as we've seen in Scripture today. And God, we ask that you would do miracles in our lives today. That, God, those who are sick in our family, God, would you heal? Those who are lost, that, God, we uh, need to reach out to, would you fill us and enable us to do that? But, Lord, help us to trust you and seek you and expect answers from you because you're so willing. Uh, And, God, because of the cross, that, Lord, you 
of course you want to answer our prayer because you made a way for us to pray to you through the cross. And we thank you for that. And thank you, Lord, that you're our mediator and that there's no one else we need to go to but you, Jesus. So fill us, we pray. Bless the rest of our day and this week. And use us, we pray. But come back soon. We look forward to your reign on earth. Um, in Jesus' name, amen.